You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you're a guest with us, uh, welcome here. My name is Darcy, and we're glad that you're with us and that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to Psalm chapter 16. We are slowly working our way through every psalm, and so we know that this is going to take us a while. This is a multi-year project for us, Um, and so we are in Psalm 16 today. And if you were here last week, Sam was talking about the gathering, and and one of the things Sam talked about was the, the power of music. And I would even go so far as to say that there is a There's a power and there is a beauty within art itself. And I don't know if you're a creator of art or an enjoyer of art, but there is beauty in the things that people make. And when we actually do that making, that creation of art, we're actually following in the steps of God. God is a masterful artist. And throughout creation, we can see that. So Sam talked about some beautiful songs that really, like, got him. And the thing that I thought of this week was a slug, actually, okay? And it's a slug that's called the banana slug. And it is on the west coast of North America, probably from about central California all the way up to British Columbia. You can find them in pockets. It is an interesting slug that only resides in places where there's a lot of moisture, generally has to have some fog. And so where we have family living, the fog comes in every day to water the redwood trees. And when it's wet enough, we go for hikes on these paths and we're looking for banana slugs because they're crawling out. And this is actually a picture I took. And I don't have my hand beside it, but the the slug is probably about two to five inches long. So it's a really large, I was going to say animal. It's not an animal. It's like a a bug. I don't know what category of nature it is, but it's actually a really, it's a beautiful slug, okay? And the thing that's amazing about it is just the brightness of its color. And if you think about nature, I'm sure something can come to your mind, something that is beautiful, that is masterful. Maybe it's uh, a part of the world that is just gorgeous, or maybe it's some animal or some particular part. Maybe it's someone that you even know, because we as people are God's handiwork. We are his craftsmanship. He has made us. So every person that you look at, actually, is a masterpiece of God's. And so the world is filled with this art that God wants us to behold and to to take in. In Genesis chapter 2, one of my favorite verses actually, is Genesis chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. And it says this, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I love that. God did not just make something for us to be able to eat and enjoy. The world could have been completely gray, and we never would have known the difference. But God chose to, as an artist, 
to bring things into being that would not only be good for food, but they would be pleasant to sight. We would see them and they would be beautiful. And we would stand in awe of the beauty of them. And so why so much, like, a couple minutes here on art itself? Well, the reason is because the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. Most of it is, is songs that are written for us. It is, a, it is a part of the artistic world that not only we as Christians enjoy, but the world is actually taken in the Psalms and are in awe of them as literature itself. And we know them not only as beautiful artistic literature, but as God's word to us. God speaking to us. And as we've been going through the Psalms, we've seen, and if you were here last summer, you've seen that there's many different types of Psalms. There's all kinds of genre of Psalms. The largest category is lament. And last summer, we did 15, and I think like 13 of the 15 were lament. So we were just like down, right? We were down in the like the complaining and the difficulty and just the, the deep things, the sadness of life. But there's also psalms of praise. There's psalms of wisdom. There's royal psalms that speak of the kingship and the Messiah coming. There's thanksgiving psalms. There's just general hymns. And then a really small category of just six psalms, is psalms of trust. Psalms of trust. And Psalm 16 is one of those psalms of trust. And so this morning, we want to look at that psalm. And as we go through the summer, we're going to look at all different types of psalms and understanding what type of psalm it is, the genre of the psalm, helps us to take in the message that it has for us. Because with poetry and with music, you're talking about all kinds of things. Things are really high and amazing, or they're really terrible and low. And so you need to sift through what actually the psalmist is saying and grab for us some principles that we can hang on to. Because the psalms are not just things that we put on blankets and pillows and coffee cups. And it's not just some theology that we study. It's actually both those things things that we can enjoy and take in, and things and principles that God can teach us from. So, Psalm chapter 16, and we're going to go through it verse by verse. It's nice and short, and we're going to look at this psalm. Verse 1 says this. David sets the stage with verse 1. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So in verse 1, David is setting the tone of the psalm. It is a, a moment of a help, a cry for help that David is calling out, but instantly you see in that first verse that he's actually putting his trust in God. So we don't know specifically what is happening to him, what's the difficulty, what is it that he is struggling with, but what we're left with and, and what we're really hanging on to is that David is choosing in this moment to trust in God. In this moment of difficulty, whatever he's asking for help from, he's choosing to put his trust in God. And the rest of the psalm then is going to be an explanation as to why he chooses to trust in God. Why in that difficult circumstance, whatever it was, he's saying, I am putting my trust in you. And he starts in verses 2 and 3 by putting the focus on 
his dedication to God and to God's people. So let's read these verses again, just verses 2 and 3. David says this, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all of my delight. So David starts in verse 2 by saying, I am putting all of my trust in the Lord. But for David, it is personal. You can see there in your text, in verse 1, it should say, I say to the Lord, and Lord is all capital, all capital letters. That is the word, that is the name Elohim. That is God's personal name that David is using. So David is saying, this is personal for me. This isn't just a cold religion that I'm familiar with. This isn't just the God who I sacrifice to. This isn't just a thing like a religious activity that I go to. I show up at the temple. I make my sacrifices. I practice Torah. I do all those things. No, David is saying, this is personal. This is my God. And what I want to tell my God is that you are my Lord. It's a funny thing to say to God, isn't it? Because God's kind of like, I know that. <laughs> but David here is acknowledging something. He's saying something to God and putting his trust in God in the only words that he knows how to do. He says, you are my Lord. It is deeply personal for him. The question for all of us is, how personal is God to you or I? Is he something that is just a, a bit of knowledge in our mind? Is he something that is just simply a practice that is cold? Or is God personal to you? And that's something that's hard to explain to people even. I don't know if, they, if, if that's ever happened to you, if someone has ever asked you, how does something that is inanimate, God, that you can't hold on to or show to someone, how is God personal to you? And most of us who've experienced God would say that we have, we've done that. We've experienced him through a difficult season, maybe through a high in our lives. But there's a few ways that God has actually given us the experience of his presence. And one of those is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that comes into your life that gives you a nearness to God that you, hard to put words to it, but you experience him. You feel him. When you're in a dark moment, he's there with you. He speaks to you at times. He gives you direction. But there's also the word of God, which is a great encouragement that when you read it, Sometimes you pick it up and you read it and it just speaks to you. Right to what you're experiencing in that moment. You're like, how did I come across these verses? It speaks to you and goes right to your heart. But the other thing that God has given to us is each other. Fellow Christians. People that you can walk through life with. And that's what David actually points to there. David says in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. They are the excellent ones. David says, I'm having this experience with people who know God that is just so amazing. It just points me to who you are, God. And, and I don't know what your experience is, but not everybody has had that experience. Not everybody, when they think of fellow Christians, do they think of the excellent ones, you know? 
Many of us have had like some painful experiences with people who have called themselves Christians or maybe we've had some experiences that were like, I, I have no words to explain what has just happened here, you know? And these are people who call themselves Christians. So how do you get to the point of actually saying the excellent ones around me? And John Piper, when he's speaking about Psalm 16, says this. He says, don't surround yourself with churchgoers. Surround yourself with Christians, with people who willingly sacrifice themselves for the sake of others, for people who practice the great commandment, this practicing of making God first in your life and then making neighbor first in your life. This is what David is talking about. He's not just talking about people who come to church or people who go to the temple. He's talking about people who willingly give of themselves for the sake of others. Those are the kind of people that if you've never interacted with them, maybe you've never actually been with Christians before. People who are able to give and to love and at such a great degree and people that are for you. I know I'm a part of a, a small gathering of uh, some pastors in the city who have planted or who are a part of new churches and it's been an amazing gift over just a few months to be able to be with these guys and to um, you know we're studying things and we're talking and we're sharing experiences but a few weeks ago we were praying for each other and as we were praying for each other I was just like this is amazing here we have people Christians that are together in a room. We have no historical connection. But God has somehow brought us together into one room, into this season of life. And here we are now, rooting for each other, on our knees for each other, working so that God will work in each of our lives for our good. And I was, honestly, I was blown away by that experience. That's what David is talking about here when he says, the excellent ones. When you get close to people who risk it all to follow Jesus, those are the excellent ones. And when you practice that for others, you become the excellent one. And through those decisions, God actually moves and you experience his presence. You experience the closeness of the Lord. But David goes on and says in verse 4, there's another kind of dedication. So that dedication to each other is one, it's beautiful to see in God's people. But there's another kind of dedication that David says, I want no part of. Look at verse 4. It says this, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. David is saying within his own context that there are other things happening in his society. And he's thinking specifically of different types of sacrifices, different type of idol worship, different things that are going on around him where a community of people are actually committed to something. A community of people is actually gathered around this type of experience that maybe even religious experience or maybe it has like some sort of religious experience. And, and David says, I'm not going there. Now, I, I'm a big fan of music. I love music, all kinds of music, all kinds of genres from like classical music to, I don't go as far as country, but I dabble in it sometimes, okay? All the way to that end. But one thing that I really like actually in that, 
you know, my family kind of makes fun of me is I'm like a big Elvis fan, actually. I love Elvis and his music, the old stuff, and even into the big, you know, the sweaty Las Vegas Elvis. Like, I love that kind of 70s stuff. But I'm not a part of, like, the Elvis crew, you know. There's, like, some, there's a whole community of Elvis people. Some of them even dress up like Elvis. But there's a whole, like, Elvis thing going on. I'm not kind of in that, just not by choice. Love Elvis, but not in the community. But listen, there's all kinds of communities out there. There's all kinds of groupings, affinity groups, things that we may even like love to be a part of and we enjoy. And they, they even bring with them a sense of the, the feelings and the experiences that we are even enjoying here in this context. It becomes a church for people. And David says the temptation is for me to actually enter into that, fully enter into it. And in the process of doing that, the idol becomes my God, actually. And David says, I will not do that. He's using this, like, sacrificial language. I won't pour out this blood offering. And he says, the names of these things won't even be on my lips. Now, what's David saying here? Like, don't be an Elvis fan? No, David, he's not saying that. But he's saying, Dabbling in these, these things that can take the place of God is a road that he's not even going to go down. Because his trust is totally in God, Yahweh, personal relationship. God is first. He is choosing in this moment to make God primary in his life over anything else that feels fulfilling, or that even is fulfilling in the moment, David says, I'm not even getting close to it. God will be the center. And so, how do we even know that what we're following and the God that we choose to love and worship is the right God? How do we even answer that question? Maybe the Elvis fans have it right. David's going to get to that at the end of the chapter here. In verse 5, he switches gears a little bit. Look at verse 5 to 8. In these verses, David points to God as the, the sovereign, the one who is actually, he's able to trust him as all the different things of life happen to him. So look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. So when the, when the dice is cast, David is saying, God, you are in control when the numbers land. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. God is in control. And this this topic of the sovereignty of God or the fact that God is in control is a massive topic. But it's one that you see over and over again in Scripture. That God is in control of things. That God is able to, to rule the universe and the world and our individual lives. In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew writes this, verse, verse 43. He says, and Jesus is speaking here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is saying, God people fully in control. When good things happen to evil people, and when bad things happen to good people, God is still fully in control of all things. David's saying, I'm able to trust God when that happens. Now, the beauty of the Word of God is it also captures most of our natural struggle with that. Because there's so many things that happen in this world, and you're just like scratching your head like, God, how are you in charge of this? This thing that's maybe happening to my life, God, how were you able to even allow that to enter in? Maybe the thing that you're seeing happen to someone else. You're asking the question, God, how are you able to let this happen? In Job 21, let me just read these 10 verses. It's a little long, but it's a beautiful picture of the honesty of God's people with God. To struggle with God actually staying in control. Job writes this, Look at me and be appalled. So Job is obviously in a state of physical, you know, struggle and difficulty. And lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull reeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and peace. They go down to, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Job is saying, God, how does this work? My neighbor who has no desire to follow you seems to just have like a perfect life. Everything is just working out. And here I am trying to follow you, the God of the universe. And this has happened to me. Isn't it beautiful that the Word of God brings the honesty of our hearts to the text? It doesn't hide from that. It doesn't paint like this masky kind of picture where everybody gets it. They just understand the sovereignty of God. They can just explain it, and with a smile on their face, they say it's wonderful. No, the Word of God is brutally honest, and in the difficulty of life, it says, God, how are you still in charge? How are you still a God in the universe? And David is able to, in the honesty of that, all that's happened to him. Because we know as we've looked through David's life, if you haven't read some of the accounts of his life where he's betrayed by his family, he's betrayed by his friends, he's chased, he's kicked out of his own kingdom, all these really hard things. And here now in Psalm 16, David says, I choose here to put my trust in God, to put my trust in the sovereign God, who when the lot falls, is in charge. How does David do that? Is there like a magic formula? Is there something that he just goes to? Well, what we see is that David goes to God's word. 
Verse 7 and 8 again says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. David is putting into practice what he wrote in Psalm 1, where he said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what David said he's doing right here. He said, the way that I actually get my mind to trust in God is by putting God's word into it so that when I wake up at night, probably many of us have had this experience, you wake up at two in the morning and you start thinking about all kinds of things and your stress level goes up. David says, when that happens, what I'm looking for and what I need is for God's word to be a resounding voice. Because at night, everything starts swirling around, right? Not only does every, like, crack in the house scare us, but every, like, scary thought that ever comes, like, every worst-case scenario comes to mind. And David says, what I need in that moment is for God's word and the truth of God to be the loudest voice. To be something that I can repeat to myself and say to myself so that even in the scary moments I can say, I put my trust in God. His word is the thing that is kicking around in my head and in my heart. And for that to happen, it, we must take it in, which is really hard for many of us to just regularly put the word of God into our minds, to be reading it, to be listening to it to be thinking about it, meditating on it, putting into practice the entering of God's word into our minds and our hearts. And what that does when we do that actually is what this psalm calls creating a a path for us. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, so the result of doing this, that's what the therefore is there for, Well, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A path, we've all walked down a path before out in the forest maybe, or in a field. A path is a part of some land that is like flattened out or maybe has been worn right down so that it's gravel or dirt, which makes it the easiest place to walk. And that's what David is saying here. There's a path that's actually laid out for me. I could trudge through the forest. I could trudge through the field. But there's a path that is laid out for me. And that path is entering into what God has for us and saying no to certain things so that God stays central. And David says that path then will lead me. It's the easiest route to what I'm actually really looking for. The thing that all of us are longing for, which is fullness of joy, eternal gladness, all the stuff that we get like little glimpses of, this path will lead us to it. But to get down that path, it actually means saying no to trudging through the forest and saying no to walking through the field. James, or sorry, Justin, early in his book, The Common Rule, he talks about this experience of 
going through life stressed out and busy and just constantly saying yes to the demands of work and yes to the demands of society and coming to this like aha moment where he discovered that he didn't actually need to say yes to everything. And in the process of saying yes to everything, he actually ended up becoming miserable and like burdened down by all of these things that he wanted to do. And so he writes this in his book, The Common Rule. He talks about the, he, what he calls the freedom liturgy. So rather than saying yes to everything, he says there's actually a freedom to saying no to things. And he calls it the freedom liturgy. The freedom liturgy is dangerous for two reasons. So saying yes to everything is just dangerous for two reasons. First, we think that by rejecting any limits on our habits, we remain free to choose. Actually, by barraging ourselves with so many choices, we get so decision fatigued that we're unable to choose anything well. And the second reason is that it blinds us to what the good life really is. What if the good life doesn't come from having the ability to do what we want, but from having the ability to do what we were made for? What if true freedom comes from choosing the right limitations, not avoiding all limitations? So the psalmist here is saying, there is a path to be taken that will lead you to what you most long for, which he says in verse 11 is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, at God's right hand, is pleasures forevermore. We don't even know what that fully is. We've never experienced eternal pleasure or fullness of joy. We've just had like drips of it from different gifts from God. And David says there's coming a day where you, where you will be able to experience the fullness and the eternal pleasures of God's goodness. But it comes down a path. And in Acts chapter 2, and we don't have a lot of time to cover that, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his sermon. This great sermon where he ex explains and, and shares it, and so many people come to Christ. And in that sermon, he actually quotes Psalm 16. He quotes these last verses, verses 8 through 11. And he tells the audience, he says, these verses were not about David. These verses were not just personal for David because David died and it was in a grave and Peter says we can still go to that grave and see where he was buried. Peter says these verses were actually foretelling about the Messiah. They were talking about Jesus, about one who would come, who would create a way for us, a pathway for us to enter into the fullness of who God is. And that fullness and that reality was Jesus, Jesus himself. And so the question of how do we know whether or not we have the right God, we have the right Jesus that we are worshiping, is this actually the true or is it a false idol? The reason that Peter pointed to that and the reason that we can point to these verses and say yes is because of Jesus. Because Christ came, he died was buried, and ultimately was risen to life. His resurrection. Nobody has ever done that before. No human has ever lived, died, and risen to stay eternally alive. So Peter says, with David here, the path actually leads us to a person. 
And in that person, in Jesus Christ, our fullest joy will be realized and our deepest pleasures will last forevermore. And so this morning, I want this psalm to point us to Christ and his fulfilling work. And in the book of Numbers, we'll just close with this. In the book of Numbers, God is actually giving the, the rules to the priests of the temple about how they're supposed to live, what they're going to get. And he's given all kinds of land to the different tribes. And he comes now to the priests and he says this, And the Lord said to Aaron, he's giving these instructions to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land. What if Aaron was like, hold the phone. Everybody else is getting like land. Everybody else is getting something. Isn't that like the best? To have something to hang on to? But he lets God continue. He says, you will, inherit, you will have no inheritance in your land, neither shall you have any portion among them. So you're not going to get any of the like, benefits of all that these different tribes are getting. Again, Aaron's like, hold the phone. That doesn't sound fair. We need a piece of the action, man. Like, we need something. Give us a part of the land or something. But God actually gives them the greatest portion. He says, you shall have no, you won't have any portion among them. He says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. God says to Aaron and to the priests, you're going to actually experience the greatest gift actually of all. It's not the land. It's not all the benefits of the portion. You're going you're to get some of those things. You have to live somewhere. But he says, you're going to actually get the greatest portion of it, which is you get me. And that's what God is calling us to. The greatest portion that we could get. The, the fullest joy. The deepest pleasure we get is in Christ. And in knowing him and having him. So let's enter into that today. If you've never done that, if you've never put your trust in Christ, today can be the day where you enter into this journey with your life of saying, I want to experience here the fullness of God's joy in my life now, and then ultimately when I'm in his presence in fullness, eternity, ultimate joy. I'd encourage you to do that this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the way it instructs us and shows us the great good that we have in following Jesus. And Lord, I pray for everyone here today that, that they would also, um, that we would together, Lord, experience your love and your goodness towards us through Jesus Christ and that our lives would reflect that great gift from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.